It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Nestled away in a quiet, somewhat rural area outside of Stockton, California, you'll find Scotty's Workshop, a full-service And we do mean full-service shop specializing in vintage and classic BMW motorcycle repair, restoration, as well as machine work. As we do with all of our guests, we'll dig into Scotty's history with BMW Airheads, and we'll talk with him about his mechanical and build philosophies for motorcycles. Let's get into it. It's Scotty Sharp on the Airhead 247 Podcast. Uh, we're talking with Scotty Sharp today, and Scotty, first thing I want to ask you is, uh, I, one of our previous episodes, we spoke with Ted Porter, and we were visiting here just a little bit before we got started. Tell me how you met Ted and how that relationship uh, between the two of you has helped grow your business and and everything uh, in BMW repair and service. Well, thanks, Darren. It's really a, an honor to be on your, web, your uh, podcast I appreciate it a lot. Um, I used to go to Ted Porter because I, I met Ted many years ago, probably way back in like 2007 or 2008, because one of my best friends, uh, Adam Chikini, used to be a mechanic over there. And so I used to hang out over at the shop. And Adam and, and I guess I didn't know Ted at the time, actually, but Ted, they were both instrumental in getting me into the world of BMW motorcycles at the time. I was driving, I had all kinds of old Japanese bikes and things like that, and uh, Adam was on a uh, an R100 twin, and he, you know, I, I just, I thought that bike was so awesome, it was just a step above anything that I had ever ridden, and so I wanted to find something for myself. Somebody forwarded me a link to a local, you know, uh, donation trader uh, in San Jose, and they had a K100 RT for sale, super cheap. I think it was like $800. And I went over there, and it started up, and it ran. So I bought it, and I brought it home. And then Adam helped me revive it at uh, Ted's shop. And I just sort of fell in love with the whole mechanics of it. So and, let me let me jump in there. So you got your, st- got your start kind of with BMWs uh, with a K-bike. Uh, yep. What was uh, – and I'm – you know, happy to chit chat about those. I'm curious, though, as far as the airheads go, you mentioned the R100 uh, was the first one you saw. When did you eventually get into an airhead, and what was that? Well, let's see. Uh, the reason I got into an airhead, I didn't, and at the time, I really didn't fully comprehend the difference between the airhead and the K bike. To tell you the truth, I thought they were both cool bikes, and I, I, I'd been heavily into BMW cars for my entire life since I was been 15. And the similarities between the K-Bike and the cars is almost, you know, it's, it's, it's uncanny. So I really felt comfortable working on the K-Bike. I knew all the technology already with the fuel injection systems and so on. And um, 
it only became apparent to me that I wanted to get an airhead when I wanted to get an older bike. So uh, some more of my friends, uh, in addition to Adam, my, my very good friend, Belez Descolange, who's a real uh, motorcycle fanatic, um, very lucky to be friendly with him, especially at that time when I was first getting into bikes. Um, he, both of those guys were going on a ride in San Francisco called the Moto Melee, which is an annual ride of 1,000 miles over some of Northern California's most arduous roads, like single lane and goat tracks. And it's three days and uh, it's really hard riding. But the caveat is you have to have a bike that's older than 1970s. I mean, 69 and earlier. And so my K bike obviously did not uh, measure up to that. And I had a number of smaller Japanese bikes like CB350s and stuff. But I didn't really think that they would make the trip or I didn't think my back would survive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. So Blaise at the time was driving, and he still has it actually, is a beautiful, absolutely awesome R75-5, and he had been riding that. Now, that wasn't fully eligible for the ride since it's a 73, but they let him squeak by. And so I wanted to find something that was eligible for the melee, and that got me started into thinking, well, what, what could I ride? You know, I could, I could get a Moto Guzzi, I could get something uh, uh, from England perhaps, uh, but I, I, I thought, you know, what, what is, what exists in the BMW world that's eligible? And I did a little bit of research, and I figured out that the one, the model that came out before the Slash Five was the Slash Two that was available from BMW from 1955 to 1969. And it was, you know, the more research I did on it, the more I realized I kind of wanted one. They were, their reputation is very reliable. They're comfortable. They're re- reasonably fast, and uh, it'd be a perfect ride for a sport touring ride through the mountains for three days and, you know, not have to worry about breakdowns and stuff like that for the most part. So I went hunting and I found an R60 slash two, a 1962 model from a guy in Palo Alto who had had it since he, he was 17 years old and he rode it all around North America. His pictures, he gave me these pictures of him riding with, you know, when he sold the bike. It was very, it was a very touching moment when I bought the bike because he had had the bike for so many decades and, and he was obviously an older guy who had stopped riding. And in addition to the bike, he also gave me his parts stash. He was one of those guys that just thought, well, if I have a spare, then the original will probably never break. So he gave me a spare engines and cylinders and pistons, like literally like dozens and dozens of, of gasket sets and things like that. And um, when I bought the bike, I wanted it to be reliable. So I started taking it apart and investigating it, putting it back together again and trying to figure out, you know, what was worn out, what wasn't working well. So that R60 slash two was a great introduction to the world of airheads. It was a fantastic bike. Do you still have it? No, I sold that bike. I eventually, when I got the bug to start working on bikes, I, I, I rebuilt that bike so many times that um, I kept doing, you know, I could take it apart one year and then the next year I would... Uh, you know, paint the frame, and then I would put it back together again, and then I, you know, would put new bearings in the wheels and things like that. And eventually, it got to be really nice. And by then, I was already in business fixing bikes, and I decided, I since I had other bikes at that point, I would go ahead and fully restore that bike. And I believe that it became um, number three or four in my Duchess restoration lineup. I have a little sub company of our company that just restores bikes back to museum quality. And it's called Duchess Motorcycles. Yeah, let's talk about that a a little bit. So I saw on your website uh, or the blog spot, uh, whatever it is, um, I read read up a little bit about that. I saw a few of the bikes that you've you've gone through, and I think 
one of the unique things uh, that I wanted to talk with you about your shop uh, in particular is that you're really uh, a full service shop when it comes to restoration. And cor correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, you really don't farm out much, if anything, in that process, do you? That is correct, yeah. We try to do it all in-house if possible. There's a few things that we don't do either because they're really messy or they take up a lot of space or they require you know, some sort of special license, that, which in California is actually quite difficult to get unless you do a lot of quantity. Such as? Like plating or feed blasting. Okay. Or anything with sort of environmental in nature, California is kind of, their hair grazes up about stuff like that. So we farm that out to the pros. And I have a, a number of different suppliers that I've been working with the last 10 years where we've, you know how it is, you work with somebody and uh, like a plater, for example, and you, you go in and you say, hey, you know, this is for a motorcycle that's going to a museum. It has to be perfect. Do you have any craftsmen in-house that want to make perfect parts? And then, you know, some, some people are honest and they'll say, you know, that's not really what we do. We just do like industrial work. We, we just do hundreds of thousands of screws or things like that. But I found a couple of suppliers who are willing to really work with me and they charge me a little extra. And, you know, that's reflected in our prices too, but they provide us with the quality that we want. And so what are some of those parts? I mean, I understand, you know, so some of the things you might farm out then you're saying, you know, if something needed to be bead blasted or vapor blasted or something like that. Plated, powder coated. Um, what are some of the other things that we do out uh, where we ship stuff out? Mostly those things. Okay. Yeah. And so when you do a, uh, do a frame, are you powder coating or painting? It depends on the, the client. Sure. They'll do either one. Uh, obviously, it, it's, um, they both have their amazing uh, benefits, but most of the bikes we do are riders, and so the customers want them to be incredibly durable, and the quality of the powder coating that we do now is, is so good that it's almost indistinguishable from paint. And in fact, I think it's a better quality than paint because it's so tough, it withstands a lot of the, 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 the assembly uh, nicks and scratches that you normally get with paint, you don't even get that with powder coat. And so you end up with a, a result that's like nearly perfect when it's done. Yeah, I was going to say on a, on a tip. The, it, since, it's a, it, since it's a powder coating shop that does the work, they have a pre-process where they bead blast the frames and then they soak the frames in some sort of acid solution and then they bead blast them again and then they wash, they, they have special... Um, as part of the, the vapor process, they have some kind of solvent system that washes down the metal, and then they put it in the oven. They've got this huge oven there that they can actually put an entire tractor trailer of a truck in there and bake it so that it's totally dry when they powder coat it. It has no, no oils in it. It has no um, moisture in it. And so you get this incredibly bonded surface on there that's almost, uh, when, we, when we get the frames back, we don't have them mask off a lot of the parts. Um, like, for example, with where the bearings go, mm -hmm. or where the threads are, we retap all that stuff and recut all those with um, tooling that we've made so that you get an amazing finish. Like, the edges are not – like, when normally when you tape something and you mask it, when you peel the tape back, you get this little ridge. But when you put a uh, tap through it, for example – it um, it just cuts it nice and smooth, and the uh, the appearance is fantastic. Yeah, that's a that's really a nice like that that's a nice little bit of attention to detail there. I follow exactly what you're saying, and you know you do often read or hear about or hear guys discussing you know paint versus uh, 
powder coating, of course, if you know, you're going for a, quote, uh, correct restoration, somebody would argue the paint process is originally how it was done. Uh, but but at the same time, you know, anybody who spent any time looking at a, an original or maybe a restored painted frame on a on an airhead, inevitably you're going to see, you know, the yellow primer coat underneath a nick somewhere. I mean, they 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 have a tendency to show up. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's very true. Yeah, the only time sometimes the main issue with pet with powder also is color matching. If a customer wants a specific color, I only have certain colors that we work with. Obviously, black, you know, is a biggie. Our Avis black is the standard BMW color, so to speak. And then um, the other one, uh, you know, if, if there's a special color like that we're painting, like we're, we're doing an, a pre-war R35 at the moment, and the client didn't want it to be black. She, she wanted it to be kind of, an, you know, an eye-catchy color. So we chose a Honda color, which is sort of a, uh, a rose-colored uh, red. It's it's kind of um, a deep red with a little bit of rose tint in it, and it's very custom. Obviously, you know it's a Honda color, so we ordered it from Honda, and then we had to paint the frame because obviously we couldn't get powder in that color. Right. So that that's an example of you know when we have to paint a frame, it's it's usually a unique color. I have some of the basic BMW colors in powder at this point, you know, like gray and black and so on. So as far as uh, the Duchess uh, part of your business goes, the restoration process there, uh, how, just in general, how's business? Are you, um, are you, you know, a couple years ahead uh, of, you know, are you taking uh, uh, reservations? How, how's the process going? You happy with uh, the, the client base? We, we generally focus... Uh... Uh, the the, res, the restorations are our main business. Okay. So that's started and sort of what we do all the time. The challenge with restorations is you really don't make a lot of money on a restoration. And so we've, we really have to do either a number of restorations all at the same time, or we need to um, supplement it with our repair business. So it means that the, the main challenge with all of our restorations is the amount of time it takes to get it done. And, you know, sometimes it takes us somewhere between a year and a half to a year, and, and we have, we've had bikes in for restoration for many years. Like, you know, in, in, in one case, like, for example, with that pre-war bike, it came to us as little, literally a pile of parts, and, it, and we've, we're still working on it, hoping to get it ready for the quail this year, actually. Oh, wow. But I've um, been with it since, like, 2014. So it's been here for seven or eight years. It's a long time. And, but, you know, um, whether or not we're going to, you know, it's a difficult process to do that because it takes a very understanding customer and a customer that realizes that we can't run a shop, you know, you know how it is when you do a restoration, you might only get a little bit done because of the timeline of things. You can't literally work on a restoration full time and run a shop with, you know, eight guys in it. So we do a little bit of work on it every month and as much as we can possibly do, you know, if we're waiting for parts or we've got a problem to solve or something like that. So that means we might only bill somewhere between five or six or $700 a month in some cases for these specialized projects, you know, like we're rebuilding a crankshaft or we're uh, trying to figure out how to solve a problem where we're missing a gear in a transmission and it's no longer available or something like that. And um, very slow going. But, you know, and the, the juggling of all these projects, I think, is the, the biggest challenge with the restorations. That's why we try to do the, 
the, with the Duchess motorcycles, we're just focusing on the slash twos and some slash threes. So bikes between 1951 and 1969, we feel like we know those bikes the best. We have all the tooling and we have a lot of parts. And so most of the Duchess bikes, in fact, all of the Duchess bikes that we do are in the, in that era. And we do, what we typically do is we'll get a customer that wants the Duchess bike, but it's interesting. Generally, we don't actually restore their bike because most of the time people have a bike, unless it's, unless it's a bike that they've owned like since the beginning or they've had it for 30 years or something like that, you know, but if they come to us and they've just bought a bike and they, let's say they pay $10,000 for it or something like that. If they come to us and say, you know, I want this restored, I will generally say, I really think that your best bet there is to try to fix that bike up, sell it, and get the value out of it, and then go buy a, a real junker, you know, for a few thousand dollars. Interesting. Put money into that bike. Because, you know, once you do a Duchess restoration, we're going to take it all apart, strip it, and um, it's going to get completely rebuilt anyway. There's no real reason to destroy the value that's already in the bike. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you're get, going, you know, looking at that process, yeah, why start uh, with a $10,000 bike when you could yeah. do the same thing with uh, uh, something much less? Exactly. So the main thing for us is that we, we start with a bike that's matching numbers that generally is in good enough condition where we can restore it meaning it's not been sitting at the bottom of a lake for, you know, 10 years or something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Know, so I usually find myself going out and buying these wrecks. Uh, you know, every summer we go out and look for barn finds, and some years we have great results. I think this year we got four bikes, and um, so we're going we're gonna to turn Two of them are good enough where we can turn them around and, and sell them after they've been major serviced. We're doing one right now, an R60-2, actually. We, we take the whole bike apart. We replace all the bearings on the chassis. We replace all the cables and uh, all the rubbers, grommets. We usually replace the wiring harness because they're usually in bed shape. We'll do a, um, if it needs it, we'll do a slinger job. If it needs it, we'll do a transmission rebuild or a final drive rebuild. We'll go through the whole bike basically, just make it as perfect as we can without getting crazy with the cosmetics. You know, we'll, we'll clean everything as we go along and, um, and then sell it as a, a working, rideable bike. The other bikes that are in worse condition, we'll take them completely apart. So we got an R60 slash two right now. Actually, it's just an R60. It's an early R60 that is in is in for Duchess, and then we've got an R69s right now in for Duchess. So those bikes are up on our website as being available. Yeah, yeah, I, I took a look at those uh, the other day. It's just it really some magnificent work you do there. And like I said, you know, I'm really impressed with the fact that you keep uh, a majority of the services in house, especially. Uh, the paintwork, which is something I want to talk to you a little bit about. So I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 Valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m. and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. 
Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are Airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. There's, um, it, when you're repainting a BMW, um, it's, <clears throat> there's special paints, uh, obviously, that make it correct, to make it uh, look right, uh, and to last long. For the longest time, I, I grew up in Ohio, and was fortunate enough uh, to live close to Holt BMW in, in Athens. And for the longest time, they were, you know, the preeminent uh, BMW painter. Uh, and I know Kent's still doing work, uh, but he's obviously slowed down a little bit. So just talk a little bit about the paint process, uh, what kind of paint you use, and how that, you know, is a little bit different than, you know, taking it to your local, uh, you know, paint shop or auto body shop uh, to get something like that done? Well, um, it's the same, the same thing. The interesting thing about motorcycles is that when you look at a motorcycle, there's a lot less paint on it than, like, let's say for a car or a hot rod or something like that. When you look at a car, there's so much paint on it that it, if there's a scratch or an imperfection, it, it's difficult to really see it unless you're really looking for it and it's a really, really nice car. Um, so a lot of the body guys that are out there that paint cars don't have the eye for motorcycles. And then the other thing about motorcycles is since they're, you know, so exposed, a lot of the, the body work and the geometry of it needs to be perfect. Like for example, if a fender is crooked, you know, if it's a twisted or something like that, when you stand back and look at the motorcycle head on and you see that twisted fender, it's going to be so apparent even to an untrained eye. So the thing about motorcycles, I think, is when you paint them, they need to be 99 to 99.5% perfect. You can never get it 100% perfect with paint or bodywork, but you try to get it where, you know, it, it is nearly perfect. And it requires a really good craftsman to do paint. In fact, I think to be a painter, you need to be obviously a good body man. And body man is like, it's like the hardest job. I, I'd rather, like, take the transmission out of a Kenilworth than do body work on it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's, just, um, it's just very hard work. It's very intensive. It dries out your hands. It's a lot of sanding, days of days of sanding, just uh, all day sanding. And then, you know, there's metal work involved. There's welding involved. Um, it's a really, uh, it's a very, t you have to be very talented to do it. Let's put it that way. So um, I was lucky enough to, to meet up with a, a guy. He works for me full time. His name is Dan. He's an old timer, hot rod guy. He can do anything. Um, you know, he can do carpentry, he can do um, uh, metal work, he can fix engines, uh, he can do electrical. But as he's gotten older, he prefers to just do body work and paint and, it, and, and also work on smaller parts like motorcycle parts because you can handle them a lot easier. And so he does all of our body work and paint and he's been doing it now for the last, uh, gosh, about 10 years now. And, uh, you know, uh, it's difficult to find craftsmen like that to uh, work on the team, but Dan's been an uh, integral part of our team for a long time. And I have to be careful about how we, you know, we talk about paint, especially because we're in California. In California, 
um, the totalitarian government that we have here uh, is very strict about their rules, even though we, don't, we might only paint one motorcycle every month or two. Mm-hmm. We would be required to have tens and tens of thousands of dollars of licensing to do that. So the way that we've gotten around that is just to simply uh, work out of other shops and uh, use their licensing. And then when we want to paint something, we'll go into their shop and use their personnel and equipment and things like that. Um, and then the rest of the stuff that doesn't require licensing, like bodywork and so on, and blocking and everything we do in our own shop. So tell me about the kind of paint you use. Um, I know um, there's the original type of paint that was used on, on BMW bikes. Uh, is that still available? Yeah. Um, Glasserit is the manufacturer of the paint. The older bikes take a, a product called Glasserit Line 22 or 22 Line. And it's a single-stage um, polyurethane-style paint, and it's still available. We buy it from Kent Holt at yep. Holt BMW that you mentioned. They're not Holt BMW anymore. I think it's called Holt Design. Yeah. We still buy paint from, from Kent. And uh, if we have any special color that we want, I get it through Kent. Like, for example, um, I can get uh, Daytona Orange. We, we painted several. That's our most complicated paint job that we do is the R90S in Daytona Orange. We've done half a dozen of those or so, four, four or five or six of those. And um, that's an amazing paint job. And for those are expensive paints, though. Like for a Daytona orange paint job, the paint alone is almost $1,000. Let me jump in. And, and uh, so folks are listening or might not uh, know exactly. Explain what is the difference between a single-stage paint and others is. Okay. The, the single-stage paint is Glasserit Line 22, it's a paint that goes on over the primer, and once it goes on, you paint it in multiple layers. We do six layers of paint, and um, that's all there is. There's nothing else on top of the paint. So once it dries, we then examine the paint and determine what the finish is. We may sand in between paint layers. After the first or second layer, we sand a little heavier, and then as it gets built up, we sand less and less and less until finally you're left with an absolutely mirror finish that literally looks like a mirror. It, you want it to be distortion-free. Our test in the shop is we hold it up on the table and reflect the fluorescent lights in it from the ceiling, and the fluorescent, fluorescent lights should be straight. They shouldn't be all wavy and curvy. And um, once you get to that level of finish, um, that paint will be ready to install. Um, oh, we have to paint stripes on it, obviously, but I'll talk about that in a second. Um, that's single-stage paint. The beauty of single-stage paint is that you can eventually, once it dries, after about a week or two in good weather, you can then apply a nice Carnuba car wax to it. We use a liquid Carnuba and, and coat it. And if you reapply the liquid Carnuba, depending on the way you use the bike, but you know, every six months to a year, typically, um, it'll stay that way forever. If you let it lapse and, it, and you lose the shine, or if you rub against it with your like leathers or something and you buff it a little bit and um, it gets a few surface scratches in it, you can then remove the Carnuba wax with um, wax removal compound and then apply a polishing compound to it, very, very fine polishing compound, and buff it back to its original finish. And the reason for that is you can actually buff out some of the paint, and remove it, and get it back down to a a, um, you know, you're moving a few microns of paint when you do that, and you get it back down to that mirror finish. That's the beauty of 
single-stage paint. You can always make it look fantastic. You can take an old BMW with original paint on it, and if there's enough original paint there, you can tape off the lines, the, the stripes, and buff it back to its original finish. Wow. And yeah. So I'm following exactly what you say there. So you've got five, six uh, layers uh, of that paint and no clear coat. That's correct. Yes. Whereas the, the, the clear coat colors, like, for example, Daytona Orange, um, there's, that's, that's called De, uh, Glasserit Line 55, and it comes with multiple layers, including the clear coat. And uh, once you put the clear coat on, you can't buff it anymore. The finish is locked in. And you can you can touch up the finish, but it's a lot harder and it's a lot more difficult to buff out a clear finish um, than it is a single stage. Let's talk about the R90S uh, paint because you alluded to it that it's a complicated process. Uh, I purchased an original paint R90S uh, about three years ago and had you know, looked around uh, for one that had not been repainted. And in fact, it seems like if somebody's shopping for one of those bikes, a vast majority of them seem to have been repainted. Finding an original one can be difficult uh, yeah. at times. And then secondarily, uh, if you do find one that has been repainted, uh, odds are it's, it's they're usually not that good. <laughs> I mean... You've probably seen a number of them for sale or other bikes and, you know, getting the, especially with the orange, uh, getting the fade right, uh, getting the angle of the fade right, you know, kind of where the knee bend is uh, and the blending of the colors. It, it's it's difficult to do. So you've done a few of those. Tell me a little bit about the process there. And I, let me ask this let me ask the question first off by saying from my sort of untrained eye, there seems to be about four or five different colors in, involved in there. Yeah, let me see. How many colors are in there? Well, there's, two, there's really two base colors. There's the, uh, the gray and the orange. Okay. And uh, so, and, and you probably notice, like, a lot, if you look at original R90Ss, they're not, they're not all the same. They weren't painted by machines. They're exactly. Exactly. And it's obvious also that someone at BMW said, here's the general idea. You know, we're going to do this. It's going to be a stripe down the middle. It's going to fade. And then somebody, I, I don't, there's probably a lot, but I'm not, I'm not a history expert for sure when it comes to BMW. Yeah. Uh, I like that kind of stuff, but um, there's so many people that know more than me about stuff like that. But it's obvious also that somebody, some very talented painter, went through and said, all right, I'm going to take that idea and I'm going to start painting this production line. And... For that reason, they change over time, the ones that you look at. They're none of, no two are exactly the same. Some of them have the fade that's three inches wide. Some of them have six inches wide. Mm. Some of them have the fade that goes up the tailpiece all the way to the top. Some don't. Um, you know, they're all slightly different in some way. And so when I started looking at pictures of original paint bikes, and I, I have a friend of mine, uh, Les, who is a uh, BMW mechanic, who's a longtime BMW mechanic, and it lives up in Marin, and uh, he has like six R90Ss in his collection or something like that. Wow. Went over to his house and looked at them. And, you know, he looked at some of the pictures of R90Ss that we had painted, and he immediately pointed out, oh, well, this, you know, this fades a little bit too long, or, you know, this is not right, and so on. So we're, you know, we're constantly getting better at it. But I do believe that um, our, our R90S uh, Daytona Orange jobs are incredible to look at. They're, I mean, it's just fabulous. So, 
so uh, such a vibrant and and bold you know color scheme. Whenever you see one, you know when I I usually have at least one R90s ongoing here in the shop. We have one going right now in Daytona Orange, and for um, a while I had one that I rode around on because uh, it was finished and I hadn't sold it yet. So I put four or five thousand miles on it just to you know keep it going. Mm-hmm. And um, wherever I went with that bike, wherever I went, everybody gives you the thumbs up or has to stop you and say, oh, I wish I had one of those. I had one of those. I sold it. You know, it's just one of those bikes that everybody has to see. And it's just an exciting bike to look at. It is. You know, I live here in Arkansas and I'm in a pretty rural, well, very rural area. And when I got that bike a couple of years back, uh, I you know, go somewhere, you know, park somewhere and inevitably, yeah, I'd come out and I'd see somebody with their cell phone taking pictures of it or something like that. Uh, as you say, awesome with those kind of models. Yeah. Yeah. Models they come out with, even in the cars over the years, you know, it's like driving around in the BMW 3.0 CSL, you you know, you do that, you're going to get stopped everywhere you go. Yeah. And you know, this one guy asked me, he said, you know, who, who did the paint there? Or who who painted the bike? And I said, you know, it it came out of Berlin that way. And he just he re, he didn't believe me. He refused to believe it. Right, because it looks so custom. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. The BMW is really good. I think at just uh, celebrating those types of breakthroughs. You know, from a um, either a racing standpoint or a technological standpoint. When you know the BMW uh, in 1975, BMW won the the championship uh, with Reg Pridmore, I believe, right, and. Um, they were celebrating that, and they, they reflected it in the paint. In the next year, they came out with the Daytona Orange, and I, I think that's the history of it. I, like yeah, I said, I yep. Stuff, they, yeah. You know, they do that with a lot of different models. Like, I have a K1. I, I've, I'm still into K-bikes, and it's a ridiculous-looking bike. It absolutely is. It's just silly, over-the-top looking. Do you have the ketchup and mustard one? No, I have a blue one. Oh, Okay. Um, but, you know, uh, it's just one of those bikes that when people see it, they're like, what the hell is that? <laughs> you know, did you make that? No, it's a totally stock <laughs> original bike. It only My bike only has 4,000 miles on it. It's just, uh, it's just BMW was celebrating the fact that they just built this amazing aerodynamic, you know, space bike. Uh, and they just come out with these wacky models. Like, you know, you see that with the uh, BMW M5. Yeah. I really like that kind of stuff. Um so that's why I have some of those models. Yeah. One last thing on the on the 90s on that paint job. So, you know, when I first brought mine home, and of course, you know this. I mean, depending on the light, uh, the sunlight. If you're in the shop, you know, the the, the paint has a different look to it. Um, and you know, I kept a friend of mine looked at it and said, you know, is there green in there? And I said, you know, I don't. I don't think so. Like you say, I think there were just those, as you described, kind of those two base colors, this uh, orange and the silver. Uh, but it, so just to be clear, though, it's just the blending of those two colors. And I guess whatever primer you're using uh, is what gives those different gradations um, and and lines of uh, or uh, appearances of different colors uh, in the paint job. Is that right? I, I really don't know, actually. I, I'm not really good with colors, to tell you the truth. That's yeah. one of the reasons why I love black BMWs. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not good with colors. I can't see colors very well. Um, I like colors and looking at them, but you know, like some people will look at colors like Daytona Orange. Like my paint guy, Dan, 
uh, he's really good with colors. He'll look at it and say, you know, there's like a little bit of rose in there. Yeah. Or, uh, I can see a little bit of brown or whatever, and, you know, I can't see that. It's one of the reasons why I never made it past first-year art school. <laughs> I, I, just I couldn't cope with the colors, and uh, I wanted to do everything in black and white. And, um, but, but that's, and that's sort of my, the way my brain works. But, um, you know, I, 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 I don't know the answer to your question, but I've been told that with the Daytona Orange, there are very subtle colors in there. We actually tried uh, with, with a number of our customers, you know, they don't want to pay the prices that um, the glass rip paints go for. Mm -hmm. So we've developed a number of copies of the glass rip paints with uh, the company called Nason, and they make a single-stage polyurethane paint. And I've gotten their uh, exact duplicate, I think, of the Daytona Orange. And the way that they do it is with a computer. They take a, they have a special calibrated digital camera. We spray it out. They take a, a picture of it, and then the computer mixes the paint. And oh, indistinguishable even the size of the metallic is the same size interesting um it it we've done at least one daytona orange paint job in uh with nascent paints and i believe they come out really good wow yeah you know and and i heard uh, not having uh purchased any paint before but i know that glasser at paint uh as you mentioned is it's, it's it's pretty expensive just for a quart of it yeah, a, a two quarts, uh, two quarts and a pint are what we use on a Day Daytona Orange BMW. The cost from Kent is approximately like eight or nine hundred dollars plus shipping. Wow! I can't, and um, you know, I can't get it quickly. I need to call Kent several months in advance because he's just really, really busy. So, and that you know, I, I try not to rely on the, those kind of solutions because it really holds us up in our workflow. That's one of the reasons why you said earlier, why do you have why do you do it all in-house? Well, I didn't used to do it all in-house. I used to have people that did a lot of stuff for us. I used to, you know, like for rebuilding crankshafts, I used to use uh, the awesome gentleman, Chris Chambers, who uh, lives in Alabama. He's an old-timer, master machinist. Um, and one of the most difficult things with machining is tolerance fitting, where you're, you know, you're taking fairly heavy-duty parts, uh, thick metal, and fitting them together within you know, one ten thousandth of an inch. And that's what crankshafts are. And so to, to, be, to get to that level of assembly, you really have to be a really good machinist. Um, and uh, we were relying on, you know, folks like Chris to do these uh, rebuilds for us, you know, cylinder head rebuilds, crankshaft rebuilds, boring and honing of cylinders. And for a lot of the other stuff, that I did, like engine rebuilding, transmission rebuilding, transmission rebuilding. I, um, Blaise, uh, my friend Blaise is a master at rebuilding BMW transmissions, and so we were relying on him uh, to do all of our transmissions. And I just tried to pick out those people that I thought could give us the absolute highest quality. And what I realized was those those people are not going to be around forever. You know, they've, they've they're either getting older. In the case of Chris, he wanted to retire. He called me up one. One day and said, you know, I'm thinking about retiring. I'm like, what are you crazy? You're only 79 <laughs> years old. <laughs> you know, we got to keep going. Yeah. So I said, well, look, um, you know, what, what am I going to do? I, I got to keep doing this, and I can't. You can't retire and just leave me hanging. So I've got to learn what you're doing and start to replicate it in house. And that happened over and over again over the last you know 10 years. So um, we've just been, you know, I fervently learning to do these uh, techniques and bringing and getting all the tooling in-house. So whenever I have 
whenever I have the chance, and something I love to do is to learn how to do a new trade. Um, I will, you know, try to take on a new mentor and learn how all these old school techniques are done so we can work on the bikes using the original crafts and tooling and trade that they were built with. Um, and I think that really improves the whole spirit of the bike. When you go into our workshop now, it's like walking back into the late 50s, early 60s. All of our, machine is, all of our machines are, are old school. We don't have any computers except for my email computer. There's no CNC. Uh, everything's hand done, and um, just like it was a bit way back when. A lot of my tooling is from the collections and estates of old-time mechanics who have either passed on or decided to sell us their inventory of tooling from when they were BMW mechanics way back in the day. We've teamed up with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America to offer a special membership deal for our listeners. Now, before you think, wait a second, Darren, how much is this going to cost? Let's just stop right here and say it's free. This is a complimentary one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 podcast listeners. The MOA has a goal of adding 200 new members over the next several months. That's a lot. But I think they can reach that goal with our help. By supporting the MOA with this offer, you're also supporting this program. And let's say this again, it is free of charge. Visit 247.bmwmoa.org and complete the online form using the activation code AIRHEAD247. That's easy to remember. You'll receive your free one-year digital membership, and that will give our program credit for referring you. Or go to the description section of this podcast. We've got a direct link right there. Membership in the MOA offers discounts at hotels, a monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistant programs, plus a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. All this, plus you're supporting our efforts here with the podcast, bringing you unique insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free one-year digital membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the code AIRHEAD247. Thank you very much for your support. So we've got an amazing collection of tools and tooling from the likes of, like, Roy Reynolds, who uh, is another guy who taught me how to rebuild crankshafts. His father was one of those guys that goes out and rebuilds and repairs machinery on site in uh, machine shops. Like that was an old school job back in the day and where you would go out and rebuild somebody's bridge port and scrape the ways and, and you know, do all kinds of work to make, bring it back within tolerances. And then, and then Roy learned a lot of that stuff. So his tools and his tooling and his machine work were like over the top. And, um, uh, I bought uh, Dwayne Ausherman's tool set. Oh, yeah. Dwayne, Dwayne's also been an incredible mentor to me in terms of just running the shop. I didn't know anything about running a shop, really, when I first started. But Dwayne, you know, ran one of the most successful BMW dealerships for a long time. And, and Roy ran uh, Salt Lake City BMW for many years also. So he's been great. You know, he helped, he helped me um, just learn how to write invoices and how to do uh, labor billings and things like that. Uh, Chris Hodges and um, the guys over at San Jose BMW have always been a great resource for us, uh, by also by referring customers to us, but also um, helping us with uh, 
you know, providing parts to us and things like that. And of course, you mentioned Ted Porter. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we basically over the years, you know, as people get busy with their lives or they want to retire or whatever, we just realize, okay, in order for us to keep doing this, we need to bring it in house. And that's been my, I guess, my biggest challenge is, you know, is just keeping going and keeping everything consistent so that we can have a production of something like crankshafts in-house. Um, you know, because finding it's impossible for it to employ somebody full-time rebuilding crankshafts. It's just, you know, it's not going to happen. The, the crankshafts may only go, top dollar crankshafts may only go for $1,700 or something like that for a hand-built crankshaft. And no matter how hard, how many, you know, you, you, can't do, you can't do like five of them in a month. You, you know, they take time to do them. And so we have to find a way to, to do all these things and still uh, pay the bills around here. Well, just reflecting a little bit there on, on what you said, uh, it sounds like you've sort of become the repository of all the old school knowledge uh, from the 60s and 70s, and you're taking that time-tested and true method, bringing that into your shop and keeping that alive, which by my take, is really what's needed to keep these old bikes going. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, and I have to also think about the future. Um, you know, it took me a really long time to figure out what I was doing with my life. And, you know, I wasn't, I was 43 when I decided to do all this stuff. It was about 10 years ago. Um, and, I, you know, I was, I was not a motorcycle mechanic my whole life. So I used to be a computer engineer and uh, was a CTO of a finance company. So I, I just tinkered with motorcycles, but I come from a family of my father's mechanic. My grandfather was a mechanic and I loved being in, you know, around all these machines and things like that. I used to spend hours in my dad's shop and hang out with him and take apart cars and fix things. But when I was growing up, I mean, that seemed like the furthest thing to my mind is being a mechanic. I, I just didn't never really occurred to me that I could be a mechanic or I wanted to be a mechanic or have a shop. But as I got older, I realized I didn't, want to, I didn't like sitting at a desk. I didn't like talking on a phone. I didn't like sitting by myself designing software. And um, the last thing I really wanted to do is manage a whole bunch of people in a high-stress environment and, uh, and have, uh, you know, have all the friction that occurs with that. I just wasn't in that world and, uh, mentally. And, uh, and I, was, I was also had a really long commute, too, to go to work on the train. So when I was, whenever I was on the train, I was just dreaming that I'd be riding my motorcycle. And um, I guess what I'm getting at is that, you know, you go into a business like this and you don't realize that, that you really love it until you actually start doing it. But then once I realized that I love it, I, I decided, you know what, I could really be happy doing this. I don't need to do anything else. I, I could go hang out in my shop and be, spend the whole day there. And, you know, the whole day goes by and, I, and I'm totally content being in there tinkering with my machines. Perfect. Well, I mean, that's, you know, for younger folks who may be listening to this, I think there's, you know, this is something I put into practice in my own life is when I thought about what I wanted to do for work, uh, how I wanted to make a living or anything like that. I think, well, you know, what are the things that I do in my free time that I already enjoy and I, and I do without thinking about it or without having to, uh, put time aside for it and the things that make me happy. And if you can make a living doing something along those lines that you would normally do anyway, what a great, what a great way to go through life. And it sounds like you found that nice balance. 
Yeah, it, you know, I always say to kids who are, you know, in their teens or 20s, if you can figure that out when you're in your teens or 20s and you don't have to wait until you're 43 or <laughs> yeah. your 40s, right, you really, your, your life can be truly wonderful. And, you know, not that it can't be doing a million different things, but you really can get a head start if you start early like that. Like I always think to myself, well, what if I had gotten started when I was like 19 and I started buying tools and right. up stuff? You know, it, my life would have been so much different. And but you know it, it's all cool and I, I I love what I'm doing. We recently I, uh, we had a shop in Santa Clara, in near Silicon, uh, right in the heart of Silicon Valley. And the only reason I was there is because I lived there, and I I was just the idea of getting a shop outside of the realm. I, I didn't I didn't want to commute anymore, so I wanted to find a shop right in the neighborhood, which I did. And we leased that shop. And we got bigger and bigger. We had about two thousand square feet there. And it was an epic shop. I mean, it was amazing. People would come from all over the world to come see it. And uh, we loved working there. And um, at the, the peak of it, I had like maybe six or seven guys working. And we would do all kinds of repairs there. But eventually, the, that whole situation became untenable because our landlord really wanted to convert the whole property into high tech and didn't want any machine shops in there or tech mm. shops. And also, the, the cost of living in San Jose was getting too much for me personally. So um, last year, we recently, um, we were lucky enough to find this amazing property in Calaveras County, which is about 120 miles east of the Bay Area. We live in a town called Murphy's, and I purchased a three-acre farm, and there's three houses on the property plus a 2,000-square-foot shop, and um, we, we recently, were actually all year, we've been working on converting the shop and getting it updated with insulation and heating and air conditioning pumps and solar power and so on, so on and so forth, three-phase electric, all that stuff, and you know, as I get older, I'm 53 now, I realize, I gosh, I can't work as hard as I used to or as many hours as I used to. It's really important for me to have a team that I can rely on to, uh, to get the work done that needs to get done. And they need to be really skilled and they need to know what they're doing and have the experience to, do the, to continue the level of quality that we've already pledged to our customers. And so my ultimate goal is to find someone who is... A, a, a polymath, kind of like I am, a person who's interested in multiple trades and skills, but mostly centering around vintage BMW motorcycle repair. And, you know, we have housing here on the property. I've got a two-bedroom house that's available. I want to find somebody you know, out there, if any of your listeners are interested in changing their lives and they have experience working on airheads, um, we, we would like to expand our team out here in the country and uh, find somebody that's willing to dedicate um, their time to bring these old bikes back to their former glory. Yes, calling all wrenches, uh, job opening. Yeah, we're really excited about all their aspects of this property as well. Like, for example, the property used to be a wedding venue, and the reason hmm. I got it, I believe, is that they didn't, they couldn't make the business happen during COVID, and so the property came up for sale. But the, the grounds are really amazing with grass areas and there's pavilions and things like that as well as a vegetable farm and a fruit farm wow and there's a there's like a potting shed on the property that we're converting into a camp kitchen with a shower and a bath and a laundry because of our location we're like a a perfect spot for motorcycles to stop and camp out for the night and maybe get a little mechanical work done yeah i was just going to say yeah that sounds like the perfect spot for that yeah, we're right on Route 4 going up over Ebbets Pass into Nevada. And, you know, thousands of motorcycles go by here. 
on a regular basis. And so we figured, you know, we actually last last summer we had a few uh, rough and tumble contingents from the BMW Airhead Club come out <laughs> and uh, camp out, polished off a bottle of whiskey, camped out on the lawn, had a great time. And, um, uh, you know, we're hoping to expand that kind of stuff in the coming years and ha- and be more of like a social gathering spot, especially in the summertime. Yeah, boy. The other little house that's on the property here um, used to be an old gas station in the 30s. And it's very small. It's like 600 square feet or something like that. And we're converting it to an Airbnb. Maybe we'll have that done next year. So for those people that don't want to camp out, um, I'm hoping to have like a motorcycle-themed Airbnb where people can hang out and, and spend a civilized night. Man, but man, all that sounds perfect. It sounds like you're really getting things dialed in there with all aspects of that. The property sounds great, and just the multi-function aspect of it, too, uh, seems to really make a lot of sense. Yeah, the, the beauty of it and just being out here in the country and the natural part of it has sort of really uh, energized me, you know, to the next level. It was great having... It's great. It is great having a motorcycle shop, but it's like the next level when you put it on this property and you realize all the other things that we could do out here. And, you know, just going out at night and seeing the stars and everything has been really energizing for me. Yeah, boy, I bet. That's well, congratulations, man. That's really good to hear. So, yeah, yeah, that's cool. So, uh, I want to touch on a few other things before we uh, wrap it up here. Just kind of a few general uh, questions about the state of things, I guess, kind of as I see it, and I'm curious what your take on it is. So uh, have you been watching or are you familiar with uh, the Bring a Trailer website? Yes, I am. Okay. So you recently, and when I say recently, the past two years, two or three years, seen a lot of old uh, a lot of old BMWs, among other motorcycles on there, and of course, not to mention all the cars and things that get sold on there, which I'm probably uh, sure you look at as well. But speaking particularly to motorcycles and airheads uh, on our discussion point, uh, what is your take on some of the values uh, and some of the hammer prices on, on some bikes recently? Uh, they it, it seems to have just exploded uh, as far as some of the sale prices we're seeing. What's your take on that? Okay, well, I, uh, I'll say two things that I feel like I actually know something about, and I'll say one thing that I'm probably not an expert <laughs> okay, on. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing is that is that place is like the preeminent place to see the models that you like, whereas, you know, with Craigslist or eBay or something, it seems like every time you do a search, ah, nothing came up, you know, whereas with Bring a Trailer – it seems like, for me anyway, like I'm interested in certain models. Like I have a E28 M5, which I love. And so I have a search on Bring a Trailer where I all the E28 M5s that come up for sale, they get emailed to me. That, that's a great feature. And I watch those auctions. And so it brings in people who want that model. Like, if, for example, if I wanted, like, a, I don't know, a R69S or a, an Alfa Romeo blah, 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 or whatever it happens to be, or mm-hmm. you know, Range Rover Classic or something, you just type it in, and then everyone that comes up for sale pops up there. So it is the, the, the clearinghouse for these very cool models that normally you'd have to be a hunter to find. Right. Um, you know, so for those people that don't have the time 
And typically people that don't have the time value their time, and so therefore they are a lot wealthier than people that don't value their, their time. They're going to go there and they have the money to buy stuff. Um, the other thing I'll say is that the comment section on Bring a Trailer, it draws experts and non-experts from all <laughs> walks of life, right? It does. The model up there. And you can kind of tell, some people can kind of tell, I'll say, which, is, which are the expert comments. And when you put a product up there on Bring a Trailer, it's going to get ripped to shreds yes. by some of the most scrutinizing people that are out there because those are the people that are searching for that model. They know that model. They might, they might have one. They might collect them or whatever. You know, and so you, you put an R69 up up there or something like that or something that you know people know and they'll say oh that's the wrong rear brake lever for that year mm -hmm. you know and just rip it apart and um for that reason uh people feel very comfortable buying things on bring a trailer because they've already been ripped to shreds by the experts and i and, and also a kind of side note for that is for sellers um one thing that i've learned uh and my friend blez actually brought this made this point to me because he's he sold several things on Bring a Trailer successfully. If you're a seller on Bring a Trailer, you have to handle those comments like a, like a man, you know, like you have to take it with honor and dignity and, and be humble about it and say like, okay, I wasn't aware of that. We'll make that change. We'll update this. We'll, we, you know, we, we acknowledge that it's not the right lever, whatever. But if you get, get all butthurt about it, yeah. <laughs> you're going to get slammed on there. We, we had, um, we saw a slash two, an R60 slash two BMW go up for sale on there. That was just a hideous bike. And there were so many things wrong with it that it just got ripped to shreds, and the auction was actually canceled by Bring a Trailer because the auction was a failure. Wow. And the funny thing, not it wasn't funny, it's kind of tragic, actually, but that bike was actually purchased off Bring a Trailer by an, one of our customers who didn't know the history of the bike and didn't consult with us. And, they, and he sent it to our shop one day and said, I, I just bought this bike and I'd like to have it revived and, and bring, you know, make it safe to ride and all that kind of stuff. And I, and I looked, took one look at it. I was like, Oh crap, this is that bike off Bring a Trailer. <laughs> and, and, it, and, and that bike was a complete money pit. Um, every single thing that you can imagine that could be wrong about a bike, that bike had wrong. In fact, I'm still, um, I'm still conglomerating all the photographs that we made of that bike saying, look, if you buy something on the internet, this is the this is like the worst that it could possibly be, and then I'm going to have a photo album of all the things we found on that bike. Some of them are so hideous that it actually will affect your health. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I under I understand what you're saying, and yeah, yeah. Let me jump in there. You know, you're right. You're right about um, the comment section. Um, I kind of view that really. It's just. I would classify it as sort of a, a crowdsourced vetting, uh, the way some of that is. And then, of course, you know, you've just got, as you mentioned, some people who, you know, may not be adding necessarily any constructive comments uh, or criticism to it. But that's that's just the way the, uh, the Internet is in general. I mean, you can't avoid that. Uh, but uh, it is that is one nice thing about it is, you know, as you say, those Anything that's up there is going to get picked apart by folks who at least have uh, some experience and knowledge on on those bikes. Um, to the value, though, and some of the hammer prices, how well, is that? Take on that yeah, I would say, okay, this is something I don't know a lot about, but okay. I, I kind of think that I'm an expert, so I'll, I'll say my piece. Fair enough. Um, 
I feel as though the current economy, you know, with the devaluation of the dollar being what it is, and the fact that the the stock market, I believe, is, is currently inflated. Uh, people have been making record profits in stocks recently, and uh, you know, uh, there's there's an end to that at some point. Um, we are so far in debt right now; the dollar is so devalued right now. The only way to keep it keep our economy going is to continue to print money, because production is down. Um, you know, as you as you probably have a, a hankering for. Production is down due to the skill level being down in the, U- in the general population. Uh, kids just don't want to make things anymore. They don't want to learn skills anymore. Yeah. And the tangible skills that people have, like making things, uh, I think is, is depressed. Uh, and people think they can get rich quick by shaking some booty on Instagram or whatever. It, there's no, not no, but there's very little. I, it's so difficult for us to find craft people who want to take up this job and make things and sit down and file things and, and, and torque things, you know, and I had one kid who came in some, some years ago and we were making brake pads together. I was teaching him how to rivet the brake pads onto the shoes. There's nine rivets for each shoe. So I said, look, I'm going to do a couple for you. You can see how it's done where I take the peening hammer and I peen it over and I and put the anvil underneath it. And so I did two or three of those. And then he, and he looked at the stack of brake shoes that I had, you know, 20 or 30 brake shoes and the stack of rivets and everything. He said, do I have to rivet every one of those? <laughs> I was like, no, you can just do every other one. <laughs> so, I mean, it's that kind of mentality. Like there's, there's sort of a Zen that, that, that you, that, that is missing in this world, in our, in our culture. It's kind of like a Buddhist thing. I don't know what it is, but it's the, it, what's missing is the, 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 the now, the present. What are you doing right now? What are you making and what are you learning? That is missing, and I don't think that's that. That is affecting our economy. That's, this is what you know. When I said I'm talking about something that I don't know anything about, this is this is it basically. So my feeling is that you know I think there's a sense of dread in the economy right now that people feel as though that there's a limited amount of time that we have while we're doing really well and the stock market's doing well. But traditionally, the things that do well are tangible assets, and so people are doing things like buying motorcycles and art and gold and, and things like that, that retain value. They get more expensive as the dollar gets less expensive. And so, you know, if you've got an X number of dollars sitting in your bank account right now and it's losing value because the dollars are losing, it makes more sense to go buy something fun like a motorcycle or a car or something neat that's going to increase in value that you can actually enjoy. You can sit in it, you can feel the leather, take it for a spin, you know, and, Every day you know that that asset is gaining in value, whereas if you had just left it in the bank, the government is just going to continue to tax it while it sits in your bank account and it's going to become less valuable. I think that you know, people that know stuff about money, they have that hankering. They, may, they might not spend all their money on motorcycles, but if they've got an extra X number of dollars sitting in the bank that they don't really need for living, well, they're going to go out and spend it on something like artwork or motorcycles or something uh, that's a tangible asset. That That is a great summary. Uh, I really appreciate you saying that. And I'm going to venture to say that there are going to be a lot of guys who would uh, take a snippet of that recording and play it for their wife. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of truth to it. Um, I, you know, I, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. Um, 
a, a motorcycle traditionally hasn't been an investment, uh, but listening to what you say and given the state of the economy uh, and the way things are going now, why wouldn't you buy something that you can enjoy and that will retain its value as opposed to letting uh, a stockbroker or somebody else make commission off some money uh, in, in a, in a 401k or a, you know, a mutual fund or something? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. If I had unlimited time, you know what I would do is create a mutual fund of vintage and classic. <laughs> that's that's a, a, conglomeration of ownership of it'd be like kind of like the mortgage market where we would own all these key equities but yes. every one of them would be like a vincent black lightning or a broth superior yes. we have like 20 broth superiors in our collection <laughs> and we're just we would just sell them out as you know part time, and everybody can invest in their value. That's a, that's a great idea. I I, I like that. Right I like that concept. Just to end, to put a button on this uh, on this part of the topic here. Uh, how I think, in a way, it's having an impact on the everyday hobbyist uh, and everyday rider. You know, who wants to say go out and buy an R eighty GS? You know, or early model GS. Those things are getting priced out of the market for everyday guys that want to ride one. Yeah. That's sort of the the shame, I guess, of, yeah. of what's happening with the value of things. And I think that's true. Like, I would really like to have a Bruff Superior or a Vincent Black Lightning, but it is it's out of my reach, you know. Um, so... You know, you have to you have to put you have to make your money in other areas, or you know, get your assets together so you can get up to that level. That's another subject for another time, you know. But I, I do believe that I really like seeing the younger crowd get into old motorcycles anywhere that they can. If they get like a CB350 or any old motorcycle, and they begin to enjoy the sound of the engine or working on it and the feel of the way. It, there's a huge um, leap. Uh, between old technology and new technology. Like my newest motorcycle that I own is a 2004 BMW R1150RT Police that I converted over to a civilian chassis uh, with dual seats. And um, that thing to me is like riding a freaking spaceship. It's like, it's so new it with ABS brakes and fuel injection and all kinds of other crap, heated handlebar grips. When I ride it, I just feel like nothing could go wrong. I could go anywhere in the world. Um, it's it's just so modern to me. But in the grand yeah. scheme of things, it's it's antiquated by today's standards. It is. It's antiquated. People look at it. When are you going to get a new bike? <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, but if I want to have fun and I want to go touring, that's not the bike that I'm going to ride. I will get on one of my old bikes. I'll take my R50S or I'll take my R68. Um, and I'll go right on that because to me, the older bikes just have a, when you ride them, there's so many things going on. And from a mechanical standpoint, like, you know, I'm thinking about when I'm riding, I, what part of what's taking up my mind is like, is the bike happy? Is the bike healthy? You know, what's that sound? Uh, you know, um, or if it's more, if everything's working perfectly, like it normally does, just the beauty of all those sounds happening underneath you and between your knees. It's just a wonderful feeling to be traveling on a bike. That's a lot of the reasons why people ride old bikes. And so, you know, I really like to see younger people get into old bikes and develop that love for the technology. As we move towards a future of electric vehicles and personal computers that are strapped to our wrists and things like that, we're going to be getting farther and farther away from mechanics in general 
Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. But um, I think, you know, the, the idea of the, the person who is their own mechanic, who goes through life fixing all the things that they own and all the things that they use, is diminishing. And um, to me, that's an essential part of, of human existence, is the, is the integration and, and uh, the usefulness of, of your universe of machines that you, that you have with you, you know, throughout your life. And, um, you know, my, 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 uh, my beautiful lady always says to me, you know, like, how old are those underwear, you know, <laughs> or, you know, you, this car we're driving is like 35 years old, you know, we can't go on a trip with this car, you know, but like the things that I buy in my life, I try to take care of them. And, you know, I, I have things that I have like personal items that I've owned since I was a teenager, you know, like hats and things like that, boots even. And people always think it's amazing that I'm able to keep things around this long, you know, and I, that's just who I am. And I think that people who are like that, they really appreciate things like old motorcycles. Indeed. You know, you mentioned, you mentioned, let me uh, jump in there and say you mentioned something about, um, you know, the idea of keeping something and maintaining it uh, and, you know, working on it, keeping it going, how the younger generation has to a degree, lost a lot of that. Uh, I think at sometimes that can be a broad brush uh, to say that, but you know, in every broad stroke, there's a there's a bit of truth. Uh, yeah. And one sort of catch twenty two, I think that we're seeing now is the the cafe style bike, where you see a lot of guys buying old, you know, whatever it is, an old slash six or a slash seven or something like that, and you know, customizing it or, or chopping it up. And you get guys um, who aren't necessarily a fan of that uh, and see it as devaluing the bike and taking away from the value of it. But then again, at the same time, that's what's getting the younger generation in, into motorcycles, uh, into old bikes. Uh, what, what's your take on that and, you know, how you see that trend going forward? I... One of the things that um, turns me on about BMWs, frankly, is the documentation of BMWs. Like, if you look at the factory manuals and the parts manuals and everything, it almost seems like everything in the BMW world has its place. And that's very comforting for someone like me, you know, where I want to build, I, I, I want to build something, but I, sometimes I just don't want to use my imagination. I just want to make it exactly like the factory wanted it to be. That's the way we do our restorations. Um, when I, my, my, one of my first full-time employees, his name's Scott Day, he uh, is the exact opposite. He wants to change everything. He is a hot rodder, you know, true and true. And so um, it's always been, a, you know, an issue with him to make things exactly original. He does an amazing job at it now. And, but, you know, there's always that customization bobber, hot rod, chopper guy in him burning through. And one of the things that we built a couple of years ago, in fact, we're going to take it back to the quail this year, is our R60 that we did um, purely built to piss off the BMW purists who want everything to be exactly the way they're supposed to be. We took an R60, we chopped the frame, uh, made the rear end into a monoshock, we put a rear disc brake on it, we put 21-inch Harley Davidson rims on it with skinny tires, the... Um, the engine, we reversed the engine so the carburetors are in the front and the exhaust pipes are in the back. 
and painted everything black. We put a Springer front end on it. I mean, it is over-the-top, customized, bobber, hot rod, cafe racered out. I think I've seen a photo of that somewhere. uh, It was in Cycle World magazine a couple years ago. And uh, that bike, you know, when we first started doing it, I was like, what the? (laughs) you got to be kidding me. But, you know, and I fought Scott, you know, almost every step of the way. Like, this is way too far out there. No one's going to like this. This is crazy. And the more he pushed me to do it, frankly, the more I liked it. And um, we've done a number of custom bikes like that over the years. And the challenge that I find with those bikes is that um, getting the right customer. Because, you know, it's a lot harder to make a custom bike tastefully with the level of engineering and quality that we like than it is to do a restoration in a lot of times. Because you're not only just restoring it, but you're overcoming all these engineering problems. Mm -hmm. And so we're making parts by hand. We're, we're making something and it doesn't work. We've got to make it again. And it turns out to be pretty expensive. So we've, we've done probably like maybe, you know, six to 10 custom bikes over the years. A lot of them heavily influenced by Scott that, that have been bobbers or customs in some way. And they've all sold, um, the brown bike, the, the hacked bike, the crazy bike that we're going to bring the quail. We're going to sell that one too probably after quail at some point. So if anybody sees it and is interested in it, it um, it's quite a head turner and it's really fun to ride. And um, it's just a BMW like no other BMW. All right, let's get out of here. I got uh, about four questions. I've been asking everybody uh, sort of general questions here. Get your take on, on a few of these and see what you got to say. So the first is what would be your Mount Rushmore uh, of airhead uh, BMWs. I'm going to keep this in the realm of 1970 to 1995. So what are the four bikes of that era that you would put up on the monument? Gosh, I, that's sort of outside my range of expertise, but I'll take a shot. Okay. First, just your uh, personal personal taste. Personal taste, I would have certainly a Daytona Orange R90S. Okay. Got to have one of those out there. Um, the BMW K1, for sure. Um, I would say a, uh, you, you're going to need a touring bike in that realm. So I would say probably a mono shock, um, R100 RT fully loaded with like saddlebags and a trunk and everything. And, uh, you know, that, that in my taste would probably lean more towards, I, maybe I'd have like an early bike in there too, like possibly an, an R75 slash five, or maybe even an R60 slash five. I'll I'll accept all four of those. That's fine. Tell me one design element uh, you would change in the Airhead series. So one, if you could go back in time and tell the engineers, please don't do this. What would that be? Don't use AT uh, ATE brakes. <laughs> that was one of the worst braking setups I've ever seen. Just stupid and incredibly hard to set up to work well and a big mistake all right scratch the ate brakes on hey i've got two bikes that have them so i feel you there uh tell me your uh, best or worst roadside repair or breakdown i was uh i was on the melee one year and i was on a uh an r67 slash two and my bike started running really poorly so um 
I didn't know what was wrong with this. I pulled over. I had a whole bunch of people stop with me, maybe five or six people stop with me, and everybody's like pointing, you know, could be this, could be that, could be that. I rolled out my toolkit and um, started looking at various things. I, I thought maybe my condenser was bad, so I replaced the condenser. Didn't run a run after that. Uh, I tried a number of different things. And then um, I, I figured, well, I'll look at the carburetors. So I, I figured let, maybe there's debris in the carburetors. I took the little caps off the bottom of the carburetors, and um, it was, you know, it's in the middle of a dirty parking lot field area with stones and everything on the ground and so on. So I, uh, you know, it's hard to work and be clean and everything. So I, when I took the carburetors off, I kind of got under the bike and I looked up in that carburetor and I swore that I could not see the idle jet inside the carburetor. It just wasn't, didn't seem to be there. You normally will see a little bit of gold in there from the, right. Yeah. From the, and I, and I, thought, well, that's weird. You know, I didn't see it when I took it out. And, you know, we, we stopped working on the bike. We maybe got a little bite to eat or something like that. I came back to the bike, and I saw a little gold glint inside on the stones next to the bike, like a little tiny thing. I looked carefully at it, and it was the, the idle jet. It had fallen out when I undid the, the thing. It had rattled itself out. And it just seemed like, you know, like the, the gods of motorcycle – reached down, touched my shoulder, and said, <laughs> right there, look right there in the stones. There's your idle jet. <laughs> and I was like, hallelujah. <laughs> I put that thing back in there, and the bike ran perfectly after that. For oh, the man. Ride. Yeah, that's a good story. Thank God you found it and, you know, didn't step on it <laughs> or, or kick it. Uh, okay, one, uh, what is the one bike, uh, you might have alluded to this a little bit earlier, but and it doesn't necessarily have to be BMW, be a BMW. What's the... The one bike you're uh, constantly uh, looking for on the internet and trying to figure out a way to buy. What's the one thing you want to get in your garage these days? I've. That's a good question. I, I really like old old British bikes for mm -hmm. their look, and there's a few bikes out there that if I found one and I could afford it, I'd probably buy it. You know, and I'm probably not alone in this regard. So there's you know, but you know any of the the British bikes that that sort of uh, harken back to the days of, of like the, the Vincent uh, Black Shadow or the Veloset um, KSS or MSS, um, the Douglas Twins, uh, anything like that. I, I mean, I think I'd like to have something in my stable like that. On one hand, I would just love to own it and ride it. But on the other hand, I just, I don't know if I could have, the, if I had the time to own it and maintain it. It's one of those things. It's kind of like a Burt Monroe thing where, you become the motorcycle, and like all your waking hours are devoted to keeping this, uh, you know, this uh, monument alive. Yeah, it would just be yeah, a, a, not only a monetary investment, but just uh, a personal uh, investment. It could, right. could be yeah, a little much. All right. People that own such bikes, uh, you, you, there, there is huge respect there because it's, it's like a labor of love. That's a bike that you don't really own. You just invest into it while it's in your possession. And then hopefully at the end, you kind of get some of your money out of it at the end and, uh, and then take it to your grave, you know, take those memories to your grave. Yep. That's right. Okay. Here's the last question. Uh, I'll, I'll phrase it this way. So, uh, you're working on your R90S, um, you've hit the 3000 miles since the last oil change, you get the filter out, um, and you're going to put oil Back into your R90S, what is the brand of oil Scotty Sharp uses? Oh, my God. <laughs> Wait, I, I can make a couple of calls. So I can get 
Um, some years ago, uh, my friend Michael Cicchini in Maryland, who is a big-time motorcycle head and also Adam's father, uh, told me that there was a specification of oil uh, in Japan called JSO, the Japanese Association of blah, 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 some kind of vintage motorcycle stamp of approval. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be like even tougher than, you know, all of the standard, what are the API or something like that, or that motorcycle oil is stamped with. If a motorcycle oil has the JSO specification on it, it's approved by JSO, I think it's probably fine. Usually it means that the Japanese Motorcycle Association has approved that motorcycle oil for flat tappet cams and things like that. And so that's the kind of oil I try to focus on. Anything that has a, a couple, you know, maybe not more than a couple years, but many years ago I used to use Mobile One. It was JSO specified, and they lost their JSO specification, and I stopped using it. I switched to using Valvoline Racing. We use straight 40 weight in the roller bearing bikes, like the Slash 2s and earlier, and we use, you know, multi-grade in the later model bikes, like the... Uh, the plane bearing bikes like the slash five slash six slash seven and so on fair enough that's uh, i mean yeah that could be a whole uh series of podcasts on a debate but it, everybody i ask it's a different no, answer which i love these oils work until i'm probably 80 <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right okay so uh scotty look it's been great visiting with you uh, today, I'm glad to get a chance to meet uh, and chat with you. You know, honestly, until I talked to Ted, uh, I really wasn't aware of you. So uh, I'm, I, I have a feeling you're going to be getting uh, hopefully some emails and calls from some other folks after they put some ears on this. Uh, best way for folks uh, to get in touch with you if they want to talk to you about repairs, restorations, how do they do it? The best way would be just to check out our website where all of our contact information is listed, and the website address is Scotty's Workshop, S-C-O-T-T-I-E-S, Workshop, Scotty's Workshop. You can also Google Scotty's Workshop on the Internet, Scotty's BMW or something like that. We'll come up. We're in Murphy's, California. Our our telephone number is on there, our email address is on there, and some other information. And, Darren, it's been a real pleasure uh, having this podcast with you. It's a real pleasure to talk to you and meet you. Excellent. Right on. Catch you later, Darren. All right, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us, everybody, this week, and we really enjoyed our conversation with Scotty Sharp. As usual, be sure to check the About section in this podcast for links and information to connect with our guests. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.